It is uh, always a privilege and an honor to be asked to bring the Word of God to you. And uh, this morning, uh, rather than continue my long, lengthy series on Colossians chapter 2, which I, I hope to do in the future, maybe the next time Pastor Jess goes on vacation, but uh, I, I felt inspired uh, this morning to share with you um, a word of encouragement that uh, our Friday night Bible study group um, studied and we got into um, several months ago. Um, since October of last year, we've been studying faithfully uh, every Friday evenings in my home, the book of Hebrews. And right now we're in chapter 6. Uh, we started from last year, October, and uh, so we've been, we've been delving deep into the study of the book of Hebrews, and I want to share um, a passage which uh, became very dear to us in our study, um, and I, I hope it'll be um, inspiring and encouraging to all of you. I've entitled this message, Christ's Solidarity with His People, Christ's Solidarity with His People. And this is emphasized not only in the passage that I just read, but in the whole book of Hebrews. The author uh, makes it a point to help the Jewish Christians that he was writing to, to grasp this concept of how Christ is in solidarity with us. Now by solidarity, let me give you a definition. Here's a definition of solidarity. It means unity or agreement of feeling or action among individuals with a common interest. Unity or agreement of feeling or action among individuals that have something in common. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, uh, the lengthy passages that were read this morning by Brandon and Pastor Jess uh, might have been the lengthiest passages in the morning scripture reading here, but they, are, they were read for a purpose. And the bulk of the sermon, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on um, verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 2, in which the writer of Hebrews makes three quotations. The first quotation comes from Psalm 22. The passage that Brandon read this morning. The second and third quotations in verse 13 of Hebrews 2 come from Isaiah chapter 8. And the writer of Hebrews quotes these passages from Psalm 22 and from Isaiah 8 to demonstrate how Christ is in solidarity with his people. Before we uh, dive into uh, the subject of these quotations, which we're going to use the Old Testament text as not only the background, but the whole context that gives the fuller meaning of the writer's quotation in the book of Hebrews. When he quotes, he's quoting from the Septuagint, which tends to be abbreviated or truncated or very short, such that we miss the whole context, background, and original intention from which those quotations come from. And so what we're going to do is we're going to use the Old Testament text to 
give fuller meaning, body and flesh, to the New Testament quotation. We're going to use scripture to interpret scripture. But before that, let me just give uh, um, uh, a background to this passage here. The writer of Hebrews in this portion of the epistle is actually showing the superiority of Christ and primarily first to angels. As you read from chapter 1, he, show, he shows the necessity to know that Christ is superior to angels. Later on, he's going to show that Christ is superior to Moses and even to Joshua. And later on to Aaron, he's superior to Aaron. His priesthood is of a higher and a mightier and a better priesthood than Aaron and the Levitical priests. Christ also is the superior tabernacle or temple of which the earthly tab tabernacle and temple were only copies and shadows of. Christ was the, is the altar. He is the high priest for which all of the things under the law and under the old covenant foreshadowed. And so here in this portion, the writer is laboring to show Christ is superior to angels. And the reason why this is important for the Jewish Christians that he was writing to is because the old covenant was delivered to Moses and Israel through angels. In Hebrews 2 verse 2, it says that the message which was declared to these Old Testament saints were declared by angels. And then in uh, Galatians 3.19, Paul the Apostle himself said, the law was put in place by angels through an intermediary, which means Moses. So angels played a significant role. They were very high and mighty messengers such that the Jews paid serious attention to the old covenant to the law because it was delivered by high and mighty messengers but the writer of Hebrews says in the last days one mightier than all the prophets and all the ambassadors and messengers of the old covenant has come my son who has come to deliver in the last days the final consummate revelation of so great a salvation in him. And so he's laboring to show the superiority of Christ over angels. And interestingly, the passage right before the passage we are looking at, he introduces an element um, for the first time in this epistle that shows a solidarity. He says in verse 5 of chapter 2, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. God did not and will not subject the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth, to angels. And then he quotes Psalm chapter 8, which has to do with the original design and destiny of man. As God created man in the image of God, God's design and purpose was to exalt man. But first, for a little while, God created him and made him little lower than the angels. Interestingly, he's showing that Christ is superior to angels. And then he's going to say, the world to come is not going to be under the rule and subjection of angels. It's going to be under the rule of my creation, man, the apex of my creation, man. 
I made him little lower than the angels, and I will crown him with glory and honor. Put everything under his feet, and man in the end, in his destiny, will rule over angels. Remember Paul said that to the Corinthians? You're not only going to judge the world, you will judge angels. And that reality has not yet come to pass. Why? Because Adam and Eve... As the image of God, as the representatives of his dominion over the face of all creation, failed. They fell. They failed. And the writer of Hebrews says, we don't yet see everything put in subjection to him. But in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Here's the solidarity. All of a sudden, man was made lower than the angels to prove himself in obedience and in faithfulness as the image of God that God might crown him and exalt him that he might rule over all creation including angels and he failed. And what happened was God sent his own son. This is the great mystery and glory of the incarnation. Christ came, the son came in solidarity with fallen human beings. We don't see everything in subjection to man, but we will. But right now, we see the first fruits of it. We see Christ, Jesus Crowned with glory and honor because he, in solidarity, stooped low, became a servant, low and humble. And in solidarity with man, bore our sins and griefs and sorrows and became like us that we might become like him. And this is the beginnings of that solidarity that the writer of Hebrews is going to elaborate on. So as we look at verse 10, the writer continues and says, It was fitting for him, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That word founder, you might have a different translation, um, might be translated as author or leader. In the Greek, it's the word archegos. It can be translated as pioneer, and I think the word pioneer, it was fitting for God to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word pioneer uh, grasped the whole idea of solidarity better than I think even captain or founder or author of your salvation. Why? A pioneer is one of them. But a pioneer is a forerunner that goes before them. He leads the way. He paves the way. Not only that, he suffers and goes through all of the trials and testings as he paves the way for those to follow through. We sang that song, right, this morning? Or uh, in the Valley of Vision also. Christ is in solidarity with us. He became human. And that's the reason why. The incarnation was planned by God that he would set forth his son to be the archegos, the pioneer, the one that would pave the way. That means, folks, Jesus lived a life of faith like you and I are living that life of faith. 
So often we think, well, we didn't have any problems. He was God in the flesh. But the scripture teaches, as you read through the Gospels, he depended on the Spirit. From the very beginning when he opened the scrolls, what did he say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captive. When he cast out demons, he said, I did it by the Spirit of the Lord. When he confronted the devil in the wilderness, what does it say? The Spirit led him. He was dependent in his human Nature, he was dependent on the Spirit of God. And even his expressions of faith was generated and produced by the Spirit of faith working in him. And it is that Spirit that you are being conformed to as he lives in you. This is the whole idea of con- uh, a solidarity. Now in verse 11, the writer goes on and elaborates on this solidarity and he says he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all have one source now depending on your translation in the greek it just simply means he who sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one and it does not define what that one is and so your translations may differ the new american standard says for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one father so likewise the christian standard bible translation the csb says for all for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father and then in the niv It says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of one family. See how the translators are defining what this one is? The New King James comes to the closest in its literal translation. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. They don't indicate what the one is. And then the New English translation says, For indeed, he who makes holy and those being made holy all have the same origin. Hmm. Kind of slightly different understanding of the one. We have, they have the same origin. You mean Jesus and the people whom God has given him have the same origin. And then in my ESV translation, which I am preaching from, it says, For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. So the various translations are trying to specify what this all of one means. What is this one? And scholars have uh, come up with three different perspectives. Here's the first one. There is a solidarity in terms of shared humanity. And this is supported by scripture. Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered being tempted... 
He is able to help those who are being tempted. You see the shared humanity, the shared human nature, that solidarity. But also others, and your translations uh, reflect that, there's a oneness in terms of belonging to the same spiritual family. We are all of the, the same family under one God. Ephesians 3 verses 14 and 15 says... For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth are named. And then later on in Ephesians 4, 6, Paul says, There is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So that's the second perspective. First, there's a commonality of human nature. There's a solidarity there. And then secondly, there's a solidarity in terms of Jesus and the people whom God has given him belong to the same family. He's the firstborn. We are sons and daughters that are being conformed to the firstborn, but we are all under the same God and Father. As Paul introduced God in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wrap your mind around this. Jesus has a God and a Father as you have a God and a Father. Wrap your mind around that. That has to do with solidarity. When he ascended, before he ascended, he told Mary, don't touch me, I have not yet ascended, but go tell my brothers, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. He has the same God and Father that you and I have. So, he lives unto God and Father in the same manner of faith. He is the pioneer, he is the prototype, he is setting the standard, the example, but not just the example, the spirit by which you and I are going to be conformed to as sons and daughters under the firstborn. But here's the third perspective of this oneness, and I believe this is the most encompassing one, and this is the first point in my outline if you're following. Christ was appointed in eternity to be the pioneer and the perfecter of faith and salvation for his people. Something happened that even transcends belonging to the same spiritual family that occurred in eternity. Look at what the scriptures say. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. There's the solidarity before the ages began. He gave something to us. He gave us grace and salvation in Christ before the ages began. In Romans 8.29, a very familiar passage. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There is the solidarity. Where did it take place? In the foreknowledge of God, in the predestination of God, in the eternal decree before the world began. Your solidarity with Christ did not take place when the world was created. Long before in eternity past, 
God foreordained, God foreknew, God predestined that his son would be the firstborn and you would be conformed to him. That's the solidarity. Christ was conformed in eternity to be the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith and salvation. In verse 11, the second part, he says, Concerning this solidarity, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed. Now, interestingly, the author uses this word that has to do with shame. Now, when you think back through the New Testament, there are several places in the New Testament where the apostle would command the believers, do not be ashamed. He said to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. Jesus, in his earthly ministry in Luke 9, verse 26, said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Hmm. Why would believers be ashamed? If Christ condescended and came... To be like us, why would we be ashamed? Well, you read the Gospels and the Jews were ashamed. And the reason is because he came as a humble servant. He came as the son of a carpenter. He was born in Bethlehem, raised up in Nazareth. And they said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? (laughs) He did not look like this royal, dignitary powerful deliverer that they were all anticipating. He came in weakness. And he came with such commonality, such lowliness, that his glory could not be perceived except those who had the eyes of faith. And to those that did not see that glory, but they saw only the weakness, the humility, and the, quote, foolishness, of the way he came to deliver by dying on the cross for so-called sinners, they said, what foolishness it is. What weakness. We don't see the power. Paul said to the Corinthians, the weakness of God is stronger than man. The foolishness of God is wiser than man. Therefore, I preach Christ crucified. To those, yes, he's weak and he is foolish, but this is the wisdom of God and the power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, these Christian Jews, under persecution and affliction and suffering from their Jewish countrymen, would have been tempted to feel ashamed to be in solidarity with Jesus of Nazareth, who came as a humble servant and even defeated death by dying. Oh, they left and scorned that. He is defeating death by dying? Yes, that is the weakness of God. That is the power of God unto salvation. Are you ashamed to be in solidarity with Christ? Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed In the day he comes in his glory. Are you ashamed? Or are you in solidarity with him? And joyful and glad to be in solidarity with him. Who stooped down and condescended to be like one of us. Even in our weakness and in our sin and guilt. 
He associated with us in order that we might be conformed to him. Now let's come to the quotations in verses 12 and 13. I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning looking at the quotations. The writer says he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Let's look at the first quotation. It comes from Psalm 22, verse 22. So will you turn to Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22, verse 22. This is read by Brandon this morning, but I want to... I wanna, um, have you look at the different verses in this psalm? This is widely recognized as a messianic psalm. Though David wrote it out of his experience of pleading for, crying for deliverance, even from death, and then experiencing the joy of answered prayer and God rescuing him from the mouth of the lion. Whatever David's experience of affliction and suffering was, he experienced an answer to prayer and deliverance and joy and praise. The psalm here, written by David, centuries before Christ, was ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the words of Christ. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was fulfilled. That was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 46. Look at verse 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. That was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 39 to 43. This was fulfilled in the words of Jesus. Look at verses 16 through 18 of Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hand and feet. Clearly, he's talking about the crucifixion. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. You'll see this fulfilled. In Matthew 27, 35. This was prophetic of David speaking with Christ, speaking through him, was anticipating the sufferings of Christ. Centuries later, it was fulfilled in the Son of Man who hung on the cross. Now this psalm can be divided into two sections. Verses 1 through the first half of 21 is the cry of anguish and pleading for deliverance from the power of the dogs and from the mouth of lions, from death itself. This is Christ praying in anguish for deliverance from the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying, he's praying, he's pleading. And then from the second half of verse 21, where he says, you have rescued me from the horn of the wild oxen. And then he goes and articulates what the writer of Hebrews 
quotes and puts into the mouth of Jesus, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You see the change in tone? From verse 22 on to the end of the chapter, you are hearing, not from the crucified Christ, you're hearing from the resurrected and ascended and glorified Christ. He is saying, in his glorified state, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Whoa, wait a second. Some commentators say, oh yes, Jesus is up in heaven with the assembly of the firstborn in heaven and he's telling of the Father's name and he's singing praises with the saints in heaven. But I agree with the other commentators who say he's also doing likewise here with his body on earth. In his glorified state, yes, he's at the right hand of the Father, but he's also in spirit right here in your hearts. What is he doing? Declaring the Father's name. Anytime you get together, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. We come together as an assembly. I am there. He's declaring the Father's name. I'm not saying that every word I'm saying is the Lord's words, but he is here right now declaring the Father's name. Why? He lives in us. He's declaring the Father's name. When you meet together with a brother or sister over coffee, he's declaring the Father's name. When you talk about him, when you discuss the scriptures, you talk about the gospel and of the Christian life, he's declaring the Father's name. How are you saved? Scripture says, you shall not say, go up into heaven and bring Christ down. Or going to the abyss and bring Christ up. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith which we proclaim. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Well, I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters. You continue in the faith because the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Every time you open your mouth... And you speak about Christ and you exalt him. He's actually the one declaring. He's the one teaching. And so this is my next point here in my outline. My next point is that Christ is now in his people teaching and admonishing them concerning the Father. What is he doing living in you? He's teaching And as you get together with other Christians, your fellowship is sanctified and it's holy. Don't minimize this. He's there among you and he is teaching. Didn't John say in 1 John 2 verse 28, But the anointing, that's a word related to Christ. The anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. He's there. In our Bible study, we were talking about the words of Christ. And someone said, "Um, Dominic, isn't the word of Christ, Christ, his person? Wow, what an insight. The word of Christ. He is the word. And as we confess and as we believe the word, 
is near us. We don't have to go look far from the word. We're so often looking for, trying to reach for God. He's right there in our mouth and in our hearts, the word. And that is why Paul could say to the Colossians, very familiar passage, Colossians 3 verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now keep in mind, the word is Christ. The word is his very person. The word, let the word, let the person of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And oftentimes we read that, we read that scripture and we read it in this manner. I'm going to fill myself with the word of scripture so that when I teach and admonish, there will be wisdom in my teaching. And we will be able to sing praises and hymns and psalms and thankfulness to the Lord. That's one way of reading it. Here's the other way. As you teach and admonish one another, as you sing together in your corporate fellowships, the word of Christ, who is Christ himself, will be manifest and is dwelling among you. Because he is the one. He is the one declaring the Father in your hearts. Hard to believe that, yeah? You know why it's hard to believe that? We often think of Christ as the object of our worship. And rightly so, because He is God Almighty. He's the incarnate God, the Son of God. So rightly so, He receives all our worship and praise. But oftentimes, we forget the solidarity. That He is one of us. And as one of us who lives in us, He is that anointing that teaches us. And He is the one that said, I'm going to sing your praises. Your praises... Do not get any higher, does not even reach heaven, unless it is on the wings of his praise. Let me share with you this concept. You know in the Old Testament, the priest, the high priest, did not receive the worship of the people. People did not worship the high priest. You know what the role of the high priest was? He took the people's sacrifice of thanksgiving and the offerings, and he turned around and came before the presence of God and offered it acceptably because he was the appointed one to offer acceptable sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13 says, Through him then, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God acceptably through Him. It requires a solidarity. He is in solidarity with us. The high priest was one among them. Not different from them. He was one of them. And he came in representation of them. Came before the Father to offer up the praises. And that is the significance when the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is saying by his solidarity with us, I will declare your name. I will sing praises to you. Jesus is among us singing our praises. He is the high priest that takes our sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise and offers it acceptably to the Father. Your praise don't reach Jehovah unless the high priest's his praise on your behalf reaches Jehovah. By the way, even your prayers, 
You know, in the Old Testament, the high priest had to burn incense as offerings daily as offerings. Only the high priest was appointed to do that. What does incense represent? The Bible says in the book of Revelation, incense are the prayers of the saints. But the high priest was the one that was appointed and qualified to offer the incense before God. And that is why, folks, in solidarity with us, he is a high priest that ever lives to make intercession for us. You know when the scripture says in Romans, the spirit prays in ways that we cannot pray. He knows the will of God and prays. Folks, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Son. It's the spirit of Jesus. He's the one making intercession. Jesus is interceding through the office and ministry of the Spirit of God living in you. Because we are sons, Galatians 4 says, Galatians 4, 6, He has given us the Spirit of His Son that we might cry, Abba, Father, just like Jesus did. Just like Jesus. We have now the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Son that we might acceptably cry, Abba, Father. And so this is my third point. He not only is in us teaching and admonishing, but point number three in the outline, Christ is now in his people leading and offering with them their praise, their worship, and prayers unto God. You see the significance of solidarity? This is the reason why he came into the world and became like us. That he might pave the way not only in declaring, in teaching, but also in praise and worship and prayer. And so the most effective prayers are those that reach the Father through the wings of his intercessory prayer. He prays. He's within us. He's among us. Don't ever think and minimize the assembly of saints, even the small fellowships between two or three Christians. He is there. You know, we read Luke 24, how he came and drew near to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he opened their understanding and he revealed his glory to them and their hearts burned. That should be a daily common experience for us Christians. Why? He lives within us. He's declaring the Father's name in us and among us as we share. And he's offering our praise and our worship just like us. That's my point here. Let's come now to the last two quotations. And this one, let me read the quotation first. I'm going to take them one by one. But they appear together in Isaiah chapter So if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 8, Pastor Jess read this portion. I'm going to widen the context so you get the idea of what um, the quotation means. But the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 13 says, And again, I will put my trust in. In him. Now he's showing solidarity. He's saying, Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, and the second quotation, I will put my trust in him. How is that 
related to his solidarity with his people. One of the reasons we don't grasp oftentimes the significance of this statement, I will put my my trust in him, is because we don't understand the context. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 8 and read the verse that is quoted from the Septuagint. The writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Greek translation. But I'm going to read the Hebrew text. Isaiah 8, verse 17. That's the quotation that the writer of Hebrews quotes from the Septuagint when he says, Christ said, I will put my trust in him. Well, look at this. This is the words of Isaiah. Isaiah said, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. That is the background and the context of this short quotation in Hebrews. I will put my trust in him. The writer of Hebrews takes the words of Isaiah in Isaiah's crisis when Isaiah said, I will wait on the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. The writer of Hebrews says, hmm. I'll give the shortened version. I will put my trust in him. This is what Jesus said to show his solidarity with us. Now let me show you the significance of this statement from the context of Isaiah. And uh, bear with me. I'm going to give you a background. In the 8th century, Ahaz was the king of Judah. And Israel was the northern kingdom separated from Judah. And in the 8th century, a mighty nation, Assyria, one of the two superpowers in the 8th century, along with the Egyptians, Assyria was a superpower, threatened to take Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. They wanted to extend their dominion because they were a superpower. And the king of Assyria was threatening to take Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And Syria and Israel, to divert the threat from Assyria, appealed to the king of Judah and said, Ahaz and Judah, will you form alliance with us? That we might be stronger to withstand the imminent threat from Assyria. And Ahaz said, um, why would I side with two weaker nations? Assyria is a mighty nation. I'd rather form an alliance with Assyria. I'd rather be in good terms and in league with Assyria. And they will handle any threat. And what happened, uh, you'll see this, I won't read this, but in Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord spoke to Isaiah and said, Take your son, whose name is Shir Yashub. He had a son named Shir Yashub. Take your son with you and confront Ahaz in chapter 7 and tell him, Do not be afraid. Because Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are conspiring and are threatening to overthrow you and set up their puppet king in Judah. Why? Because you did not 
align yourself, you didn't align yourself with them. So they're going to threaten you, Ahaz and Judah, because you did not side with Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel against Assyria. And Ahaz, in common sense, said, oh, I'm going to go with the mightier nation. They're the ones I'm going to seek refuge in. And Isaiah came with the word of the Lord saying, don't be afraid of your enemies. Don't be afraid of Syria and Israel. God can take care of it. In fact, Isaiah's son's name means a remnant shall return. That's a promise that was assigned to, Isaiah, to Ahaz that God will be faithful to his covenant people. He will preserve and save a remnant through this whole crisis. They call this the Syro-Ephraimite War. And Ahaz decided, no, I'm going to trust in the arm of flesh. I'm going to trust in man. I'm going to form alliance with this mighty nation of Syria. That's the setting. They rejected the word of Isaiah to trust in the Lord, to let the Lord be his sanctuary and his refuge. Instead, they trusted in man. They sought refuge in man. And what happens in chapter 8 is this. I'm not going to read the whole context because it takes too much time, but you can read it in chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. The Lord tells Isaiah, make a big poster sign and write on it, belonging to, get ready, this is the longest name in the whole Bible, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Write on it, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I had to practice this for today's sermon. <laughs> and then he took several witnesses, and then he went to his wife, the prophetess. She conceived and bore a son, Isaiah. And the Lord said to Isaiah, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. What God was telling Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah is your next son, Mahershalal Hashbaz, whose name means quick to the spoil, quick to plunder. This is the, the word and sign of the judgment of God coming. Do not be afraid of your enemies. God is going to plunder them. God is going to spoil them. God is going to destroy them. Don't put your trust in man. Don't put your trust in the king of Assyria. Well, he has put his trust in the king of Assyria. And you know what happens? God has a, a bit of humor in chapter 8. If you look at verse 6, he says, Because this people, he's referring to Ahaz and the, uh, the people of Judah, because this people refused the waters of Shiloh, that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the mighty waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and his glory. God's method is the gentle, slow, flow of the waters of Shiloh. And Ahaz and Judah said, no, we're not going to trust in the gentle and slow flow of Shiloh. We want the mighty waters of the river. We want the king of Assyria and his mighty power to protect us and to be our refuge and our shelter. Aren't we like that sometimes? 
God solves and resolves our issues with the slow and gentle waters of Shiloh. Trust in God. He will be your sanctuary and refuge. Don't fear man. Don't resort to the wisdom and resources of man. No, we want the mighty resources of the flesh. Ahaz and Judah chose that. And he said through the prophet, because of that, I will send the mighty rivers of Assyria to destroy your enemy, Syria and the northern kingdom. But also it will overflow your banks and it will come and overflow you. And isn't that true? When we trust in something other than the Lord for security and protection, after a while that very resource we trusted in that is not the Lord begins to overtake us and infringe upon us. And engulf us. That is what happened to Ahaz and Judah. Now we come to the portion that Pastor Jess read. Look at verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, for the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary to those who trust him, to those who fear him above all others. Yes, he'll be your refuge and sanctuary. But look at the, the flip side. And a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, both to the house of Israel, a, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to, the, to those who do not trust him, to those who do not flee to him as a sanctuary, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Mercy, but also judgment, depending on you who you trust. And look at what he says. In verse 16 and 17. We're coming up to the first of the quotation from Isaiah chapter 8. Remember the quotation in the book of Hebrews? I will put my trust in you. Those are the words of Isaiah put in the mouth of Christ. It was fulfilled in Christ as he demonstrated solidarity with us. Here's the words of Isaiah. As the Lord was using Isaiah to warn Ahaz and Judah, join the remnant. Join Isaiah and his disciples. Put your trust in Yahweh, not in Assyria, not in the arm of flesh. Look at what God commands Isaiah, verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. That means make firm, seal the word that they hold fast to as my disciples. And here is Isaiah's response. The Lord commanded, bind my word among my disciples. And Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. How is that solidarity? Isaiah stepped forward as the pioneer as the captain, as the leader of the remnant of the disciples who held fast to the word of Yahweh. And he said, I will put my trust in Yahweh even though 
judgment is coming upon all of us and God is hiding his face from us. The power of that spirit of faith in Isaiah, when a leader steps forward and affirms his stand, all his disciples that are in solidarity with him follow. Isn't that what Jesus said? Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Well, strengthen the shepherd and the shepherd takes his stand. Like Isaiah said, I will hope in the Lord even though he hides his face from me. The people will become resolute and will rise up and say, yes, that's our pioneer. That's our perfecter of our faith. That's our forerunner. We will follow him. This is the highest form of of faith. Notice the words of Isaiah. The writer of Hebrews puts these words into the words and mouth of Jesus Christ. These words, you're hiding your face, yet I will put my trust in you, were fulfilled by Christ. Remember Psalm 22 verse 1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is not a cry of unbelief. It's a cry of faith. I trust in you. Though you slay me, I will hope in you. You are hiding your face from all of Israel. And I am bearing their guilt and their pain and their suffering and their sin. Yet I will trust in you to the end. And unto the end, I will yield my spirit to you, O Father. It is that kind of faith that Jesus displayed in solidarity with us. You will not be saved of your sins and your guilt unless someone had that faith in your place. I will put my trust in you, Lord. Isaiah said, though you hide your face from Jacob, I will wait on you. I'll put. Isn't this what Jesus did for us on the cross? And isn't that the kind of spirit of faith that you are being conformed to. If he is the archagos, the pioneer, and the perfecter of your faith. Remember Hebrews 12 verse 2. Look unto Jesus, the pioneer, the archagos, the pioneer, and the perfecter of our faith. Who endured the cross. Why? He had this kind of faith. Though, Father, you turn your face from me. And from all of Israel, yet I will trust in you. Wow, that is enduring, persevering faith. And that's my next point in my outline. Christ is in his people. He is now in his people, giving them the same spirit of faith in times of darkness and judgment. Do you have that same spirit of faith? Are you in solidarity with Christ? In that faith, your faith cannot overcome the world unless it is riding upon his spirit of faith. I will put my trust in him even though he turns his face from Israel and from Jacob. Let's come to the last quotation in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 13b. The writer says, and again, in other words, here's his third quotation to show the solidarity of Jesus with his people. 
He says, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, that's a short version. The whole context is in Isaiah chapter 8. Pastor Josh read that again. We read that again. Look at this in verse 18 of Isaiah 8. Right after, Isaiah says, I will wait on the Lord who is hiding his face in response to the Lord's command to seal the instruction among his disciples. Isaiah goes further and says, and this is, this is pretty dramatic. We read this and we say, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. It should be read like this. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given are for signs and wonders in Israel. Ahaz and Judah aligned themselves with a superpower because they didn't want the slow and gentle ripples of the Shiloh stream. They wanted the mighty river. They wanted the signs and wonders. And Isaiah says, my faith, by my faith, and my affirmation of faith in Jehovah, I have bound and sealed the word and the instruction in my disciples. And now, and now, behold me and my disciples, me and my children. We are enough for the world to know. They do not need signs and wonders and miracles, but the testimony of those who are steadfast in the word of God. The world does not need signs and wonders and miracles. The the world needs to behold Jesus. Behold, I, not only Jesus, behold my children, they are like me. We read about that, we prayed about that in the Valley of Vision, Christ-likeness. You see Jesus in his children. That's the solidarity. As Jesus is, so are his children. The world does not need signs and wonders and miracles which do not produce saving faith. Remember Jesus? Wherever he went, the Jews said, show us a sign that we might know that you have authority from God. Show us a sign. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said in Matthew 12, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, Jonah's story, you will agree, is very extraordinary. But how did the Jews in Jesus' day knew about this extraordinary story? None other than by the Old Testament scriptures, by reading the minor prophet Jonah. He said, no other sign will be given to you. You seek after sign. You will not believe in my declaration of my father and the truth that I speak. You only look for signs and you ask for signs. You are an evil and an adulterous generation. I will give you no other sign but the sign of Jonah. Go and read the minor prophet Jonah. The world... One signs in order to be convinced. Jesus said, no, you have enough. Look at me. Behold me in the word. Behold my disciples. They look like me. They are living epistles like me. 
Known and read by all men, written on the hearts by the Spirit of God. They are living epistles from Christ. Look at them and look at me. We are the only credible, faithful witness to an unbelieving world because we are the ones that hold fast to the Word of God and hold forth the Word of life. They don't need miracles and signs and wonders. We are the signs and wonders. Remember? Two men died, a rich man and Lazarus. One went into Abraham's bosom. The rich man went into hell and the rich man looked up at Abraham and said, Abraham, send someone from the dead to my family that they may testify of the gospel. Abraham said to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe though one return from the dead. Get that? Miracle signs and wonders affirm and confirm those who already have saving faith. How does faith come? Not by miracles, signs, and wonders. They come, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Behold me, Isaiah said. Christ says, behold me, my word, and my disciples. That's all you need. We are signs and wonders to this unbelieving generation. Are you in solidarity with Christ such that you are a light holding forth and holding fast to the testimony of his word? Look at what Paul said to the Philippians. Look at what Paul says to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. How so? Holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It sounds like what Isaiah said back in his day. Behold me and the children. We are the signs and the wonders because we hold fast the word. In us is bound the testimony, the teaching, the instruction. And you know, uh, if you look at Isaiah chapter 8, right after Isaiah says that, look at what it says. In verse 19... And 20. And when they say to you, inquire of the Medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And look at the response of Isaiah. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light. In other words, when people reject the word of the Lord, they reject the Lord as, his, as their sanctuary. You know what will happen? They're going to turn to the phenomenal. They're going to turn to the signs and wonders. They're going to also turn to the occult. Illegitimate ways of knowing the truth of God. They'll turn to witchcraft. Remember King Saul when he disobeyed Samuel and the word of the Lord? Samuel said, your sin is as the sin. The rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. First Samuel. Rejection of the word, rejection of the Lord, and the word that comes through his people will be a turning away even to the most ungodliest forms 
of seeking after signs and wonders. Is Christ and his people enough for the unbelieving world? Are you in solidarity as a faithful witness holding fast to and holding forth the word of life? I want to close with one other sense, and I'll close on this point. Bear with me, guys. One other sense in which Christ and his children are a sign. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. In the dedication of the child Jesus, Simeon, a holy man, came and blessed the parents of Jesus. Luke 2, verse 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them, the parents of Jesus, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There are certain signs, folks, that will reveal the hearts of people. Jesus The incarnate son who came into this world and was in solidarity with us was a sign that exposed the hearts. He was light. Those who hated the light, judgment was already upon them. As John says in John chapter 3. This is judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Their hearts were exposed that they loved darkness more than light. And those who loved the light came to the light. And received mercy. You see, Jesus was a sign of mercy and of judgment. Those who received him, it was a sign of mercy. Those who rejected him, it was a sign of judgment. Likewise, his people. Likewise, his people. There's no such thing as an indifferent response to God's people. When people... Dishonor you and despise you. Be careful. They are showing the sign of God's judgment. When people receive you, they are showing the sign of God's mercy. Remember Paul, uh, not Paul, but God said to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and I will, those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in the Gospels, Matthew 10 Verse 11 to 15, when Jesus sent out the disciples to go into the various cities and villages, he said this, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you and listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The people of God are also a sign, like Jesus People came out of the woodworks. Their hearts were exposed. They either loved righteousness and truth or they hated the light. So likewise, the people of God. Don't be 
discouraged if people dishonor you, scorn you, mock you for your faith in Christ. Whoever dishonors you, God said to Abraham, I will curse. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Are you in solidarity with Christ? Are you assigned even to this generation of God's mercy or of God's judgment? By the way, when Isaiah said that, behold, I and the children are signs, his two children's name conveyed the, the double sign. Share Yashub, a remnant shall return. That's mercy. Maher Shalal Hashbaz, the second son, that's a sign. Quick to the spoil, quick to the plant. God's destruction is coming quick. That's judgment. The two signs of mercy and judgment. And as Paul said later to the Corinthians, wherever we go, we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. A fragrance of death unto death or of life unto life. To those who are being saved, a fragrance of life unto life. To those who are being condemned, a fragrance of death to death. Are you in solidarity with Christ? Behold Christ and his children. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to be in solidarity with us. It was the most fitting method and way by which you have conceived in eternity to bring many sons and daughters to glory through a solidarity in which you made your son our pioneer and perfecter of our faith and our salvation, such that now he lives and dwells in us to declare the Father's name wherever we are in fellowship, he declares our praise and our worship and even our prayers to the Father as we gather together and sing together. He lives within us to conform us to the same spirit of faith, to put our trust in you as he did, even in times of darkness and judgment. And Lord, he holds forth the word of life in us and through us to an unbelieving world as the sufficient sign and wonder to this unbelieving world. Thank you, Father. Seal the word to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.